Welcome to the Run Culture Podcast. My name is Dane Verway. I'm an experienced runner and running physiotherapist. I created this podcast not only so I had an excuse to talk running each and every week, something that I love to do, but more importantly, this podcast gives me the opportunity to interview fellow runners, friends and health professionals in a relaxed and easygoing format. This podcast is designed for the everyday runner, so we can all live, learn, grow and enjoy everything there is to running together. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back everyone to another episode of the Run Culture Podcast. Today I'm fortunate to be interviewing renowned sports podiatrist Caleb McInnes. Caleb is the director of Thrive Sports Medicine Croydon. He's been a podiatrist for 10 years and before that completed a Bachelor of Biomedical Science at RMIT in Biomechanics, Human Movement and Biology. He's still a competitive triathlete, duathlete and runner and has represented Australia in age group world championships teams in 2009, 11, 12 and 15. He is a barefoot training specialist and huge on biomechanics in running. He's a father of three and has just so much insight into shoes, footwear, and anything running and podiatry. So it's been, it was a great chat with him today. Anyway, here he is, Caleb McInnes. Thanks, Dane. Um, yeah, it's exciting to be on and I'm looking forward to having a chat about a whole heap of stuff, foot function and load capacity and then delving into a little bit of, I think, stuff that's not spoken about in the sensory aspect of the foot. Yep. Yeah, I was um, in researching for this podcast. I really enjoyed going through all your sort of free informative graphics and videos you have um, made so readily available on your Instagram, Caleb McGuinness um, underscore podiatrist and your Facebook page. And, um, yeah, I came across some really good stuff. And uh, one of the first things I want to talk about was um, uh, load load management. And uh, you mentioned the concept of load management a fair bit on Instagram and Facebook. And I just wanted to go over how important do you see this concept as a podiatrist when it comes to injury management and performance in the runners you treat? And um, when you're treating a runner, how often um, – do you sort of dive into this aspect um, and do you even dive into this aspect before you even look at their feet sometimes? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I suppose to answer the first part there, yep. I think load, load management, it's a, one, it's a massive area. It covers a whole heap of stuff, which I think we'll discuss a few of those things in a minute, but it's, it's definitely super, super important. It applies to, I think, pretty much any athlete, regardless of age and gender, um, even sport. And as I said, it's, it's super broad in terms of what it what it is. I think most people focus on the the actual physical load of what we're doing and what I like to call the mechanical load, yep. which is essentially the frequency and intensity or time and duration of how much we're doing and when we're doing it. But it obviously there's a lot more to it than that. It's um, it's definitely something that I think even in like the objective assessment. So when someone comes in and we start questioning them or taking their history, it's something that in the back of my head straight away, I'm thinking about when they're telling me what they're doing, how frequently they're doing it, what types of activities they're doing. Yep. I'm sort of formulating a bit of a picture there as to, okay, yep that fits, this doesn't, that's been overloaded, what they're doing is fine, it's not fine. And then I'll kind of pick little bits and pieces out of that and I suppose probe a little bit further into a whole whole heap of different things that could potentially be affecting their load. Yep, yep. Yeah, I saw you wrote something um, really cool. It was um, titled You and Your Load and then it says understand where you are on your journey. Um, yeah. And yeah, I thought that was really good because everyone's at different stages of their running journey and depending on, you know, you know, how long they've been in the sport um, and what they're aiming for. And I mean, often we can sort of get sucked in and just copy what people are doing around us. Um, 
but it's it's good how you said you know just understand where you are on your journey like i think that's a really relevant relevant absolutely absolutely like as, as you said everyone's different everyone's at a different a different point on their journey and i think while a lot of the principles are the same you've got to try and adapt those principles to where any individuals at on their own individual journey no, that's great. And um, when when you're, uh, like, say, uh, assessing someone and you feel like um, you're monitoring their load, like, do you sort of ask questions about, uh, you know, their sleep and their stress levels and things like that as well? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, touch on sleep for a second, like, yeah. I often say to people, sleep sleep's when we recover. It's when stuff, stuff repairs and there's plenty of evidence out there around if we're not getting sufficient sleep, our injury rate increases. And it's, I think it's essentially because we're not actually recovering effectively from whatever the training is that we're doing. And when we look at load, for example, and then how much we're actually doing, we only really adapt and absorb the load that we're recovering from. Yep. Yep. Yeah, like it, it's so true. Like I think, like I, I was, I fell into this trap trap early on as a runner. Like I just thought, you know, you just had to train hard, and that's all that counted. But um, mm. yeah, it's, it, you just have to recover hard as well. Like you have to. Hundred percent. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think I, I love that what you just said in terms of recovering hard. And I think the yeah. the harder you train, the harder you have to recover. Yep. <laughs> like it's it, it's it's massive. And I think if we look at the average recreational runner out there they've got a lot of stuff going on in their life whether it be work kids dropping to school trying to fit in their own training um there's a lot of stresses out there that we can look at and it's it's just about managing those and working out okay what's where's that balance between how much can i do um and recover from effectively and then what's too much and it's actually not being effective training yep yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 that's great. Like, do you do anything or do you recommend anything like how someone could monitor that kind of load? Cause I found that really hard. Um, it's a hard skill. Some people are better at it than others. Um, and like just, just recently I've been um, trying to trying to do it myself just to try to get some data myself and on some of the athletes I coach um, where I'm monitoring like my mileage per week, but then I'm starting to do like an RPE for each session as well. So there's the rating of perceived exertion rating for each session as well. Yep. And trying to get some data. Cause I feel like that might be a better training score, like training yeah. stress score. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, um, I think there's multiple ways to do it. And I think there's yep. plenty of like readily available apps slash technology available to do it with as well um and then there's obviously old school methods methods like i know some people i see still write it down yeah they might have their week in a in a diary and go okay monday i did a 15k run for example um tuesday i've done this wednesday i've done this and then i think if you can build that across a month six weeks eight weeks whatever that happens to be and let's say, for example, you get an injury at that eight-week mark, that is, that's a great way of you being able to go back through what you've got tracked, whether it be an app like Strava, Training Peaks, you've got it written down, you're using Garmin Connect, whatever it happens to be, there's a whole plethora of things out there. But you can look back and you go, okay, well, in week one I did this and in week two I did this and in week three I did this. Yep. And you might go, okay, well, in week one, I was doing X amount in week three, I jumped up 50% of what I was doing. And it's not necessarily, I don't think about what happens from week one to three, but your body takes time to adapt to whatever stress and load that you're putting on that. And if we don't give it sufficient time to adapt, it might not be till six, eight weeks later that we actually start seeing the repercussions of doing too much too quickly. Yep. Yeah, no, that that's so good. Yeah, the just writing down like um your mileage, but then also like subjectively, um how you felt, and then also what you what what other stuff you might have done 
during yeah. the day and then you and you're monitoring maybe your sleep in a diary and then I know when, whenever you'll probably notice the same. Whenever you treat a patient that comes in with a diary with it all written down, um, yeah. often it, it it just does make life a lot easier because you can sort of just go, oh, okay, you did this, this, and this, and you got this real accurate picture. Um, and and yeah, really? injuries are never down to luck. Like uh, it's it, it really there is always you know some, you know some way or another that we've overloaded um, and uh, we've we've got to a fatigued state. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I think what you said also about just um, taking note of how you feel or doing a a simple body scan. Like if you wake up in the morning and you're you're lacking energy or you're lacking drive, like that's your body telling you something. Is Like you're obviously fatigued and is it best for you to go out and smash yourself on another run or ride or play basketball or whatever it happens to be? Or is that your body's way of communicating to you and going, well, yeah, I actually need to take a little bit of rest here and downtime and let my body sort itself out. Yep. Yep. Do you use heart rate stuff much in your training, like for your, for your own training? Do you use heart rate monitors or? Yeah, I do. Yep. Um, do I track my heart rate personally? Not really. Yep. Um, like I'll look at it during my training and go, yeah, that's about right. But if, if you ask me, like, do I write it down at the end of my session and look at it over the course of a week as to how it's going? No, not really. I'll, yeah. I'll more look at how tired I feel, yeah. like how easy was my session, what was my rate of perceived exertion in that session. Yeah. Because um, I think right or wrong science-wise, for me, it works. Yeah. I think it's part of – it's part of your training and your load management is working out what works for you is not going to necessarily be what works for someone else. Yes. Yeah. That's a really good point actually. Um, yeah. Everyone's lives are so, so different. And um, yeah, no, that, that's, that's great. Um, like I, I think also like, I think the longer you, you've run, run for um, you definitely get a, a good feel for it. So sometimes I've, I've found that, um, you almost know it intuitively without a heart rate monitor sometimes. Um, uh, and then, I mean, sometimes you can, um, sometimes there's periods where you might need to reacquaint yourself with it again. Like it's just, yep. it, it, that's probably phasic as well, like within person too. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think there's, I think there's good and bad things about technology. Um, yeah. Like we can get wrapped up in it a little bit too much at times yep. and analyze or overanalyze things when I, I don't think they always need to be insanely complex. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, yeah, I've definitely seen a lot of runners um, over the years um, just probably get too too caught up with the, the stats on their watch. Um, yeah, how is your own triathlon train and running training going during this period with COVID-19? No, it's, it's been interesting. Um, Motivation wise for me personally, I don't, I don't struggle with that sort of thing. So getting out and doing stuff's not been a problem. I think for me, I really thrive off training with other people though. Yeah. And I think being able to particularly hit my key sessions with other people that push me, that's, that's been tough. Um, I don't like training indoors when I don't have to. (laughs) Yeah. there's, There's been a lot of that, particularly on the bike recently um yeah i think i think mentally it's probably been a little bit harder in some ways but getting through sessions once i start i've, I've been pretty good i don't if i have to be honest i'm probably I, I think i've had a pretty good like six eight weeks however long we've been in isolation for yeah yeah i, I think it's been actually quite a productive training period <laughs> <laughs> and i think what, what were you aiming for before all this before all coronavirus happened? Uh, look, duathlon season usually starts about end of June, July. Um, so for those who don't know what duathlon is, it's like triathlon, but you cut out the swim and replace it with another run. Yep. Um, yeah. And then I think later in the year, I'm hoping, I was hoping to do Townsville, but whether travel restrictions will be lifted and whether we can actually run events in August, we'll, we'll see what happens. And I don't know. Everything's kind of just up in the air at the moment as to what's happening. 
And I think yeah. not just for me, but for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I found it quite hard to push um, really hard at the end of sessions um, when, when it gets really tough. Cause I'm like, Oh, normally I, I use my goal race as a bit of motivation at the end there, but I just don't have it. So um, Absolutely. yeah. So have yeah. had a few mediocre sessions here and there, but um, yeah. Yeah. It's been a funny time, but it's also, in, in some ways, for some people, it's been a good time because they, they've been able to focus on, you know, some of their negatives or some of their weaknesses or yes. some of the t- things that they don't normally focus on enough. And, and there's no pressing timeline where a race is like two weeks down the track. Um, so they have to rush. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I think if even what you just said about that pressing timeline, um, I think we can relate that back to what we were talking about before and load. And I think it's something that often the pressures of being ready for an event in a certain period of time can force people to increase their load too quickly or yep. increase their stress around if they've got an acre or a niggle, is it going to be ready enough? And yep. like there's plenty of, I think there's plenty of evidence out there now around stress and what it does to our body and the effects it has in terms of increasing inflammation and um, like, down-regulating our immune system and all those sorts of things. And all, all that's going to have a bearing on how quickly we heal. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, so often, like, you, 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 I've, I've treated runners and, um, you know, when's your race? Oh, you know, four weeks' time or six weeks' time. And, and when did you start training? Yeah, a few weeks ago or, like... Yeah, that's um, right, yeah. <laughs> not, it's, it's very seldom that you see someone setting a goal in six months' time, Um and, and sometimes that's the kind of time you need to really achieve your goal, uh, Absolutely. especially if it's a big goal. Yep, yeah. absolutely. And I think it's important for us as practitioners too to, like if someone's not, I suppose, got a realistic, realistic expectation around what's achievable in a given time frame, particularly if they've got, a, got an injury, being up, being up front about that, not because yep. we don't want them to be able to compete, but because it's in their best interest in terms of getting better and actually being able to perform at the level that they want to be able to perform at, whatever that is. Yep. Yeah, no, it's so true. Do you have anything else that um, you wanted to um, mention about um, load management um, off the top of your head? Or I think, um, yeah. I think the only other thing is that, like it's multifactorial as, as we sort of, we've spoken a lot about like frequency, intensity, how much we're doing but there's the mental aspect of it there's the recovery aspect of it there's genetics there's expectations there's a whole heap of different things that go in it and i think those things are if we don't manage those effectively we reduce our ability to increase our capacity to tolerate load yep yeah that's awesome it's just so good to hear um yeah just another sort of running sort of practitioner um and and podiatrist um speak speak that way um and talk talk about like really appreciating um yeah the that training errors are sort of one of the the major reasons why we're breaking down and um absolutely um yeah i had michael nishke on um another podiatrist um uh, about a month or so ago and he was really barking up the same tree um yeah I wanted to dive into a bit about shoes now. Yeah. Um, another piece I really that really grabbed my attention, um, yeah, from your Instagram, there was a, t- a post that was titled "The Seven Negatives of Shoes uh, That Most Can't Go Without." And I thought this was a really powerful um, comment coming from a podiatrist, and I couldn't agree more with what you had to say. Um, do you mind explaining the seven negatives of um, shoes and what you mean by these? Yeah, absolutely. So I think if we look at the the foot as a structure, it's super complex. We've got 26 bones, 33 joints, and there's a whole heap of muscles, tendons, ligaments that go into supporting that. And I suppose those muscles and tendons and ligaments are supposed to be able to support that bony structure on their own. Um, yep. We look at how the foot's supposed to function. It's a static support so when we're standing still it's got a job to do in terms of helping hold us up but it's also a a means of us being able to to adapt to terrain 
and a shock absorption capacity when we pronate. And it's also when we re-supinate or start to roll back out from a pronated position, develops us a rigid lever for us to propel. Um, and in the yes. ideal world, our foot should be able to do that naturally. So there's a whole list of things here. So support. So I suppose what I've just said kind of covers that in that do we do we need extra support in the shoe? Um, in an ideal world, no. But there's obviously a time and a place for it, I think, in that if someone's not got the capacity in their own tissue to support their bony structure, sometimes we need to prop that up for a period of time. Um, we can prop it up for too long and then not actually build the capacity. But I suppose there's a little bit of onus on the on the patient or the person there to put that strength training in place or whatever it is that they need to do to build that capacity. Yep. And there's like a couple of things here, just some studies that I've got that um, I think might surprise yep. people a little bit. So there's Durwell from 2013 that the concept of dual density foams, which is how a lot of shoes are structured in terms of their support. Um, it hasn't really been considered and, in it, well, it has now in a lot of detail, but there's actually no research to suggest that a dual density foam actually increases the amount of support in a shoe. So it actually just makes the shoe heavier, which is another point which we'll come to in a second. Um, okay. And there's actually no evidence that motion control actually reduces our risk of injury. So yep. there's a lot of shops now going away from the fact that, yeah, motion control is an actual factor in fitting a shoe. Um Okay. So if we if we take that for example, when I said it just adds weight, that's another one of the seven points, and it's yep. pretty simple physics. I think that if we look at the equation, force equals mass times acceleration. From the hip down, the legs probably the longest lever arm on the body, and if we've got a heavy a heavy shoe attached to a, a lever during swing phase that's accelerating at whatever speed it's accelerating at, it increases the amount of force that goes through our body when we hit the ground. Yep. So it's just incre- it's essentially a way of increasing load on our body. Um, so we should be yeah getting like aiming for like less of a shoe, like lighter, lighter shoes. Absolutely. And I think yep. I think technology is going that way anyway. Like if you look at most of the shoes that are out there, the foams that they're using, the materials that they're using, they're as light and they're as light as they possibly can be. Yeah, I've really noticed that um, in the ASICs range, they've had to really um, had to. They're, they're starting to have to really change because they've been st- they've been doing the Kayano for years, yep. and um, yeah, it seems like they're starting to change a little. Yes, and I think it might sound bad, and I don't mean it too, but yep. if I look at the footwear industry from that perspective, I'd, I'd probably say that ASICs is are they behind? Probably not behind, but. Other, other companies have probably adapted a little bit more quickly in some respects. Yep. Yeah. And that's not to say ASICS is a bad brand at all because, like, not everybody's going to wear an ASICS, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're a bad shoe. It's about what works for that individual person. And it's like you said before, like you said, there's a time and place for, you know, support. Um, yep. Yeah. Yep. So if we keep going through the list, we've got um, Cushion. So, and this, this will come down, I'm going to talk a little bit about the sensory aspect of the foot a little bit later. So it'll tie in, I think, well with this type of cop topic, but yep. it kind of touches on the minimalist aspect of shoes as well. And when we talk about minimal shoes, the minimal actually refers to in general, the amount of cushion that's in that shoe. So yep. the less cushion in the shoe, the more accurate our perception of like how we hit the ground and our in, impact forces is and how we can perceive that. Um, cushion in the shoes there essentially to absorb the vibrations that we have go through our body when we hit the ground. But the problem with that is in some degree to some degree is that we need vibrations to help us interpret what happens when we hit the ground. And it's, it's essentially the way that an input to our body that then gets sent to our brain that then our brain will process to allow our body to adapt to whatever, however we need it to adapt as we move forward. Yep. So uh, there's a time and a place for cushion again, 
But yep. if we look at it purely from a mechanical perspective, there's there's downfalls to it as well. Um, it, this was a really good one. Like I really like this one because I like I've had, <laughs> I've had really um, um, tr- I had a lot long history of trouble with my Achilles, and so like I've I've um, been in like um, hockers for a while with with a heel raise, and um, and and uh, yeah, it, it was it was it was really interesting, and it, it's made I actually. I've been doing a bit of skipping like the last three or four weeks, um, yeah. like just as a change um, and doing less volume and just a bit more skipping. And it feels like um, since I've been doing the skipping and in just in bare feet um, that I've probably my economy and efficiency, like um, so my pace on some of my easy runs has increased just like just just started to increase like the last few weeks. And like I, I reckon, um, I don't know, maybe over time my, my foot was just getting has, has been getting a bit lost. Um, yeah, just from been in a really cushioned shoe yeah it's entirely possible but i also think that like your body's really good at adapting to whatever's underneath it as well so yeah if we're on a firmer surface your body's automatically going to i suppose decrease or yeah decrease its stiffness to absorb shock more effectively and if we're in a more cushioned shoe you're going to increase the stiffness yeah yeah okay no i think Hopefully I get this right, but I'm pretty sure there was a study a year or two ago that said that if we put someone with an Achilles injury in a more cushioned shoe, it unloads yep. the amount of stress that's on the Achilles, but it actually increases the amount of force that goes to the knee. Yeah, okay. Um, yep. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. But um, the other two, I think, that I really wanted to just touch on briefly here are yep. uh, toe box shape which is probably my biggest bugbear um, of most shoes out there. If we look at the foot um, in terms of how it's anatomically supposed to be, the ball, the foot, and the toes are, should, in theory, be the widest part. And that's in, that's in a big way because as we go to push off, we don't have any, part of, any other part of the foot on the ground. And we're designed to splay for stability, but when we're jammed into a shoe that tapers at the toe box too much, it actually reduces the amount of width that we've got because it squashes stuff together. We can't splay. So we're actually at a point where if we don't have that significant splay, it reduces our stability and then we can't actually drive as much force and as much power through our, through our foot. And then it's obviously going to affect what happens higher up the chain as well. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was one that really stood out to me. I, I love that point. Yeah, and I think we'll, we'll touch on it again a bit later about how we can actually start to change that a little bit. Um, yep. The uh, the shape of the outer heel is probably the last one I want to touch on in detail, and it's it's pretty simple, I think. If we look at our heel, it, it's a curved surface, and it's, it's curved for a reason. Like, if we look at – if we took a square, for example, or a cube – and you put that on one of its edges, it's a greater lever arm to go and either tip out rapidly or to tip in rapidly. The faster that we tip in or pronate, the more stress that's on some of our musculature, particularly on the inside of the foot. Um, and it, it, it basically allow, means that we're going to pronate fast. Whereas if we've got a more curved shoe, so... I'm going to take Mizuno for an example because I think um, I think these were probably one of the more early adapters of rounding off the outer heel of the shoe. It creates a smoother transition from heel contact as we pronate through to toe off. So I think trying to match the shape of the shoe in terms of its outsole and the heel contour to what the actual foot is doing is a much better idea than having a really sharp edge. Yep. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's great. Now, that makes sense. So, like, with the sharp edge, um, it just – you almost just um, – it just forces you real quickly into sort of a pronation. Exactly. Kind of exactly. Moment. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That makes heaps of sense. And then the other one was just heel pitch, wasn't it, as well? Yeah. So I think, again, there's a time and a place for it. So, like, yep. from my perspective, the flatter we can be, the better. Um, but we've also got to take into account in that position, like, 
how strong is someone's calf and Achilles to tolerate those forces pushing from the ground up? We've also got to look at the shape of the foot. So how rigid is someone's ankle joint? Like if someone doesn't have sufficient ability of the knee to sort of come over the foot, we can compensate for that by stacking them up a little bit, or we can unload a grumpy Achilles by stacking them up a bit. So like, I think if we look at stretch and relax of a tendon, like, the more we stretch it, essentially, the more energy is is stored in it. But, and then we can release that energy. But we've also got to take into account: can we tolerate those loads that are going through it? Yeah. And I think uh, I think you'd probably attest to this as well that if you look at how many people come through our clinics with, um, I suppose, ankle mobility issues that are stemming from, I don't like using this word, but a tight tight calf. <laughs> Like half complex. I think that's the way people understand it. It it stacks, and uh, how much of that's attributed to being in something that's like pitched all the time. We bang on about women being in shoes and like heeled shoes all the time, but I think in reality, the majority of shoes out there on the market have some sort of heel tool. Yep, and that that's what I sort of got from these seven negatives of shoes is like. Because from a young age, we're, we're, you know, from from when we're young, we, we're put in shoes. So then our feet never really learn to tolerate those kind of um, positions by themselves. It's always got the shoe either, you know, giving a bit of cushion. Um, there might be a rocker on the shoe or um, a narrow toe box. Um, uh, yeah, the heel pitch, like you said, and the shape of the heel. So then our muscles and and foot just never learn how to actually tolerate tolerate those moments and the, the that, that exactly stress. exactly right and i think yeah like from pretty much as soon as you start going to kinder or you start going out as a kid or walking you put in a shoe um but i think that's probably a little bit beyond today because it's a topic almost of itself but what are we putting what are we yep. putting kids in like how flexible is it how rigid is it is it affecting how they feel the ground it's, there's a whole heap of things i think that we need to consider in that space and obviously it's an individual yep. situation based on that that person too. Yep. Yeah, yeah, so, sure, sure. Um, you've got – I was going to ask you, you've got three kids and, and what, what – They wear a whole heap wear? of stuff, dude. Um, <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh, look, to be honest, I'm not insanely fussy. Um, yep. We've we got some rules at school, obviously, around what they can wear. I try and choose them the lightest, most flexible thing that they can provided they're doing okay yep. in that. Um, where possible, they go bare feet. Um, and I think yep. as long as it's safe to do so and there's no damage being done in that situation, go for it. It, it builds in sensory sensory stuff. It builds in strength. It allows them to use their feet, balance. There's a whole heap of things, I think, that are beneficial in that space, but like in, in terms of brands that I put my kids in, so my oldest is eight, my youngest is two. I'll go with um, yep. Paper Crane, uh, Vivo Barefoots. My daughter's in an ASICS when she runs and she's doing sport at school. She's in an Ascent shoe. Um, what else we got? The younger ones, are, one of them's in like a, I suppose, a kid's version of the Nike Free. It's not called that, but I can't remember exactly what it's called. And then Bobucks is another one that so there's a whole heap of different different brands out there and I don't know that any of them are better or worse than others but yeah yeah it's it's what it is so when someone asks you like um generally and I know this is a hard one to answer because everyone's different but like what shoe is best for me um like that's a question I bet you get a lot um but like what's your like what's your general theory like framework going through your head like what like um like i, I saw on your instagram like you sort of um sort of said said you're aiming for the least yeah. amount of shoe possible you, you want them to be comfy and um you know ideally as light as it can be and then a good fit like are they sort of similar sort of things that you're looking for or what are you what's yeah. you know, going through your head when you um, i think i think you pretty much that? nailed it um like i think number one it's got to be comfortable if it's not comfortable when you put it on the shop, it, it's probably not going to be comfortable going forwards. Um, and comfort in a shoe is a big predictor of injury. So 
the lighter, the better, the less support, the better. And I think the flatter, the better, but we've also got to, again, take into consideration, like, is that person able to tolerate something like that in terms of where they're at in Mm -hmm. their, in their training and the amount of stress that they're putting on their body. So if someone's out there doing an ultra and they're on their feet for, I don't know, up to probably 10 hours, even more in some cases, am I going to put them in a minimal shoe with no cushion? Probably not. They're going to get sore. Um, So I, I always use the, I suppose it's a catchphrase that, um, choose the least amount of shoe that does the job for you. Um, and I don't. Yeah. also don't think that there's necessarily one shoe that is going to be the shoe for you. I think there's potentially multiple shoes across multiple brands that will work for different people. It's just a matter of going, trying them and seeing what works and what doesn't. I think that's a really cool theory because you're like, you're appreciating that the shoe can help you out a bit, but then you don't want to overdo the shoe because then you know that you're just um, getting weaker. Like you, you, your foot's not doing as much work. So then it's probably not going to be as resilient or robust um, to tolerate sort of yeah. certain loads. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Um, so I just wanted to move on. Like how do you classify feet? Like, um, there was another great point on your Instagram, like um, is pronation, supination bad or um, uh, like many runners think it, think they can be bad, but I wanted to clean up this myth. Um, uh, and, and what do you, how do you classify feet? Like do you look um, at the shape of feet or is it something? No, look, I think we do need to look at the shape, but what we see when we're standing still doesn't always mimic what happens when we start moving. So we can, we can still have, mm-hmm. I'll use this as an example. We can still have a high arched foot that's flexible and that will pronate quite a lot. And we can have a high arched foot that's really rigid and actually doesn't allow for much adaption to terrain or shock absorption. So while, while we can look at a, um, yeah, a foot and go, yeah, well, okay that has a high arch that's really flat. It doesn't necessarily mimic what happens when we start moving and that foot can still be strong. It can still be weak. We can be flexible. It can be inflexible. And I think this is something where I only got taught this through Tim Branson's strong feet course. It's something I hadn't really considered. It can be coordinated and it can be uncoordinated. So what I mean by that is, can you move things like your toes and do do what we call toe yoga? Um, like a perfect example of that is like if you keep your big toe on the ground, can you lift your second, third, fourth, and fifth? Um, or can you keep your second, third, yep. fourth, and fifth on the ground and lift your big toe? Can you do an ankle circle smoothly? I think most people will have a – like a, if you're sitting there and you're trying to rotate your ankle, you'll have a – a section that's nice and smooth and then a section that's like a little bit clunky or a little bit shaky as you move in that circle. And then can we do that in both directions as well? I'm pretty sure there'll be most people out there that one direction is going to be easier than the other. Yeah. Yep. So I think it comes back to, we can train the feet in a whole heap of different ways. Um, And putting all that together, I think it's important. Like, we can have strong feet, we can have weak feet, we can have flexible, inflexible, coordinated, uncoordinated, but we can't, I don't think we can necessarily classify feet as um, neutral because what is neutral? Everyone's going to deviate from a norm and how much someone pronates, can you classify pronation? Like what's too much for one person? What's enough for another? I don't, it's it's almost a continuum. Yep. Yep. So, like, someone might have, you know, a, a fair bit of pronation, but if they've got good coordination and control and they're strong um, through that range, then it, then there's, like, like you're, more, you're more looking at, like, the strength and the coordination um, aspect as the, the main yeah, thing we should focus absolutely. on. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. Like, I like that theory too because I think it's more productive. Like, it's... Um, 
like, I mean, like, because I think if you have a strong coordinated foot, then you, you're you going to tolerate the load. Better. Absolutely. 100% agree. And that doesn't necessarily mean that I, we don't have a shoe with extra support or extra cushion in it either. I think that's a situation where we can actually maximize the effect of what the body can do and then utilize the effect of a shoe as well. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So that sort of like leads on pretty well to the next sort of point. I, I wanted to sort of go into, um, uh, yeah, how do we reverse some of the deconditioning that footwear has had on our feet? So, um, like, what are some of the things that you, you, you're sort of, like you mentioned toe yoga before and, and I also um, uh, saw a great video where you sort of likened um, the need to have that displayed toes um, because, like, if you thought of your fingers and your hand, if you're trying to open a jar with your fingers just sort of jam-packed close together, you're not going to be as strong and, and, um, and effective as if you spread them apart. Um, like, yeah, I... I was just wondering, like, how do you go about, like, if someone comes in and they've got a foot that looks pretty deconditioned, uh, what are some of the things that you straight away? Yeah, look, I think the first thing that I would say is that the last thing that I would be changing is, like, the shoe that they're wearing or if they're wearing an orthotic, for example, example, that stuff when they're under the, the highest stress. So running, for example, because obviously when they've got the biggest load on their body and they they probably need that extra extra support or like um, ability to unload whatever structure there's being stressed. So I'll always start yep. changing small things when they're under little load. Yep. And I think probably the, the simplest one is get your shoes off around the house a little bit. So if you're at home and you're yep. in an orthotic and a shoe that's we'll call a support shoe um, all day, at work or yeah, out of the house, get your shoes off at home, get them off at the weekend and just gradually increase the amount of time that you're out of that shoe so that your body's starting to adapt to those changes that it's, that it's seen. Um, number two, I would say get, get a lacrosse ball and do a little bit of release work. So it doesn't even have to be real specific. You can just whack that ball on the floor and start working through the bottom of your foot. And I think an important part of this is that this doesn't need to be painful. I think a lot of people, when they do self-release work, whether it be on a roller or a ball, they'll jam in really hard. But I think you can go too hard and it actually puts your body into like a protective state. Um, So I always tell people that if you're going to be doing this, some release work to start freeing stuff up, if that's the right word to use, do it, but don't, don't go to the point of pain. Do it, do it as a means that it, it's, I'll say, a little bit uncomfortable, but it's tolerable at the same time, and I think you'll get better results with that. Um, something that I've started using a little bit more recently, only because of my own experience, um, is, is toe spreaders um, or toe separators. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll be honest. Yep. I thought they were a bit of a crock in the beginning. Um <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, oh yeah, what are these things? They look like the type of thing that you wear when you go to the you go to the nail salon and get your painted. Yeah. Someone yeah. gave them to me. Um, actually, a mate of yours. I think you started you started with him, Nick Reese. Yeah, that's actually he's working yeah, with me yeah. now. He gave, he gave me a pair. Yep. Oh, what five six months ago maybe, and I started wearing them, and I've like. They actually feel good to wear. And I, I think my feet yep. feel lighter. There's things that I, like some of that toe yoga stuff that I was talking about before, there's a couple of things with that that I couldn't do that I've been trying to do for ages. And then sort of about four or five weeks after wearing these toe spreaders for 20 to 30 minutes a day, I'm able to do some of that stuff now that I couldn't do. So it Fire. to me whether there's evidence for it or not, I'm not, I don't really care. Like personal experience, I see that there's been an yep. effect with those and I'm seeing an effect with those in my patients in terms yep. of being able to do different things as well. So um, ankle yep. circles is a big one for me, just increasing the coordination. Um, the toe yoga is a big one for me. Yep. 
another little exercise called fives, which I learned on the Strong Feet course with Tim. Um, great exercise for keeping the big toe on the floor and allowing us to help propel through that. Yep. So I think that they're, they're probably my big keys in the short term to start, I suppose, yep. getting people to become aware of their foot, become aware of how it functions, what it's capable of doing and what it's not capable of doing. Yeah, that's awesome. And are you using the lacrosse ball just to try to get a bit more mobility after the foot just has been stuck in a shoe? Um, yeah, is that is that the Yeah, that it the is. I think also the sensory aspect of it as well. So I think it Nice. Yeah. Like there I think there's mixed evidence out there around the effect of like massage in terms of changing length of tissue and all those sorts of things like how much force do you have to apply to do that? But we've got a whole heap of receptors in our in our foot and in in our fascia and things as well that are sensitive to to touch. And I think if it feels good to someone, why not do it? Yep. Yes, it's um, it's also real cool how you mentioned that about the those um, toes separators because I I actually um, had a patient um, get a pair this year as well, and I think I was pretty influenced by seeing what Nick was doing, and then he was promoting him a bit, and um, she she had um, yeah her um bit of hallux valgus and um so I, I i wanted to see what having a bit more of a toe spread would do and she had a bit of bursitis um yeah. intermetatarsal bursitis and um and it's 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 really helped and she's doing exactly she had a very similar um, experience to what you mentioned um she, she's able to do certain um uh toe movements that she wasn't able to do initially it's almost like it's put yeah, the well. toes in the right position um to to do it and um so yes yeah, she, she's had a good experience with that and and then i've also had another another guy i've worked with recently who um yeah it's funny <coughs> like he's just take he's had a six-week history of plantar fasciitis and um now he's walking walking on the beach a little bit he just sort of took that on um after i sort of gave him a few strength exercises nice. to get him moving a little bit more and he just started walking on the beach and he's, he's felt like just walking on the through the sand um, just a little bit here and there um, has really started to help help him. So it's interesting, like just taking the shoes off and um, how it can have, you know, um, as long as you're doing it smartly and just slowly, um, yeah, it can have a, a bit of a bit of an effect. I wanted to move on to um, like um, barefoot training versus barefoot running um, and and what the difference is and um, like. Uh, uh, like the barefoot running movement, movement, you would have seen probably a lot of patients yourself, um, um, perhaps like with injuries. Like, what's the difference between barefoot running? Yeah, so and barefoot I think running? I'll touch on barefoot running straight up because I think it's really simple. It's it's yep. pretty much exactly that. It's running barefoot. Um, <laughs> and I, I, think, yep. <laughs> I would say <laughs> to pretty much everyone in that space, um, Proceed with caution if, if you're considering it. Um, I'm, I'm not actually opposed to the idea of doing it, but I think just from what I see in a clinical setting and I think what most practitioners would see, most people aren't strong enough, stable enough or biomechanically sound enough to actually do it. And if they are, they'll be able to do it for a, like a period of time, but then that cumulative effect of load from not being strong enough, stable enough and biomechanically sound, at some point you're going to break down. So if you are going to do it, like I said, proceed with caution and go really, really slow. It might be just at the end of your session or at the start of your session, you're doing a minute or two and then slowly building up. But I think you still need to get your calf strong. You still need to be coordinated. You still need to work on your stability. You still need to work on all those other aspects of your load management if you are going to attempt to barefoot run. Um, in terms of the barefoot training yep. aspect, it's it's entirely different. Um, it's not barefoot running. It's, it's almost a complete opposite of that. It's basically a form of neuromuscular training, yep. um, which is used essentially to help us maintain balance by increasing the amount of sensitivity through the receptors in the sole of the feet. 
So someone might ask us, like, be listening here and be like, well, what's neuromuscular training? And it, it basically takes into account your whole heap of things. So your central nervous system and how that operates, your peripheral nervous system. So for those who don't know what your central nervous system, essentially your brain and spinal cord and your peripheral nervous system is all your other nerves that sort of go to everywhere else and then connect back to that. Um, but yeah, it, it better integrates, I suppose, the, the sensory aspect or what we feel and see and, um, and hear the motor, the motor patterns and the reflex systems that we have in our body. And it helps to improve our sensory inputs, enhance the connections between our movement patterns, muscle recruitment patterns, our proprioception, or essentially what our, like what we call our joint awareness and even ability to a degree as well. So I think probably one of the easiest examples of this is probably, probably commonly that people can relate to would be if you're going to do your yoga, it, not many people wear, wear shoes when they do yoga. That's, it's still a form of barefoot training because you're getting barefoot and you're doing some form of movement capacity it's, yep. and it's just increasing the feel for your foot through the ground. Um, yeah. Yep. And I think the other thing that comes into play there is, is surface. So how hard a surface is, what the texture of that surface is, how much that surface vibrates has an effect in terms of how we move and how we interpret a whole heap of different things. So something that I've been using for quite a while now in my practice with certain people, particularly that struggle, I suppose, with the coordination and balance aspect of things is a Naboso mat. I don't know if you've heard of those before, Dane. Okay. Well, I only, only saw it just the last couple of days when I, when I, I, I saw you. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's a product. Yeah. Um, they do insoles as well. They're a textured insole that developed by Dr. Emily, who does the, barefoot training specialist course and run to the podiatrist in the u.s um she developed the evidence-based fitness academy um i've done pretty much all of her courses and learned the same amounts of stuff through that for anyone who's a practitioner that wants to learn more about i suppose surface barefoot training and the role it can have i'd highly recommend looking into some of her courses um but it's essentially a a textured mat insole that uh, yeah increases the the stimulation to the the receptors in the sole of the feet um and then has a greater input to the brain and they're yeah they're actually a specific height a specific shape and a specific distance apart and they're they're based off the mapping of those receptors across the sole of the foot so it's, it's yeah okay and so like those does it um better better activate those yep. that, that's designed to do feet. and there's there's some good research out there now yep. that she's done around that um you can find it on her website i think on the or on the ebfa website if you want to go and investigate that but yeah there's some, there's some good links in particularly yep. i think in parkinson's patients um, in improving their stability yeah, um, okay. when they start to get tremors and things so yeah there's some good stuff there Yep. Um, but I, I think some, some of the major benefits of the barefoot training in the yep. barefoot training space would have to be potential increase in um, intrinsic foot strength or those muscles that are only in the bottom of the foot, um, improved glute, glute activation. So th- this is a real interesting one. There was a study, I don't have it in front of me right now, but it's, it's on my Instagram. And I think, I think you noticed it the other day that one of the muscles in the sole of the foot, the flexor luteus longus, yep. which essentially goes to the big toe, it, it found that it's a synergist yep. for the glute and deep pelvic floor. So if we activate that that muscle in the in the foot, it actually has an increased activation of your glute and your core. But what they then found was that it didn't work the other yeah. way around. So that if you contract or activate the glute and the core, it didn't actually have any increased effect on the musculature in the sole of the foot. So. I found that really interesting yep. when I learned, yeah, learned yeah. about that. Yeah, um, yeah it's really interesting because it's almost like it's really um, encouraging that sort of um, – because you can sort of look at it from the top-down approach or bottom-up approach, but really encouraging you to sort of ground your feet and, and try to get those shoes off and um, 
yeah, feel the ground and the benefits of, 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 yeah. Um, exactly right. Those yeah. Receptors. Exactly right. So, but it, yeah, it's, it's something that I, like I said, yeah, I wouldn't recommend going straight into barefoot training in a, like a high load capacity. Yeah. It's designed to be low load and yeah. Increase the input to the nervous system essentially. Well, that's what I liked about the difference between barefoot training, barefoot <laughs> running. Like, I feel like barefoot training, you're less likely to overload because yes. um, you're not running. Um, and um, you, you leave in because the, the running, there's a bit more impact and load. You, you're still putting your shoes on, but then you're still getting that barefoot, um, yes, stimulation. Um, so I feel like it's almost that best of both worlds, appreciating that all of us have had, had runners on for most of our life. So there's going to be a bit of a, um, an injury. Absolutely, 100%. Yeah, couldn't, couldn't agree with you more there. So that's good. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think it's a really, I really wanted to go into that topic because I feel like um, strength training um, is a bit more of a thing these days. Like runners are appreciating it and they're, they're starting to do strength exercises. But, you know, often um, it's, it's something that, gets missed people forget about their feet um and yeah they might strengthen their calves um they yeah strengthen their quads and their glutes but um it's probably worth like i think a lot of people will will start to go oh yeah what about absolutely i think yeah it's it's really good that you say that i think because they abide by the same physiological principles as as everything else they can adapt they can get stronger they can get weaker they can become more coordinated but yeah like you said, they don't often go to the gym, whip their shoes off and start doing exercises for their feet like they do for their everything else. Yeah, yeah. They just don't get that attention. They sort of get forgotten about, um, hidden away in the shoes and and uh, like, you know, it, and I, I'm guilty of it too. It probably wasn't until the last, um, you know, four or five years that I sort of went, hang on, like um, – they're a muscle too, and um, and and they're quite important. Yes. Like that's what our contact to the ground is. Um, and like there's such a focus on like oh, yep. I've got to get my core, 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 core stronger. Um, but like you know, if, if you if your first contact with the ground is um, yeah, not that stable or not that conditioned or not that strong, then there's a great area to um, sort of uh, exactly right improve your exactly skills. right. Yeah. Um, you also done like some great workshops in biomechanics and running biomechanics. And, um, I saw a nice video where you talked about, uh, uh, bunny hops and, um, you, you like the idea of, um, uh, when you're trying to teach someone how to, how to run, um, that encouraging that light, soft feet feel like sometimes the bunny hops really, um, sort of show that and um you did it with a metronome and and you sort of went into how like that sort of harnessing that that passive um uh stretch shortening um cycle of the tendon giving us that sort of free energy and um yeah caleb do you mind going into into um yeah just um that and maybe some of the other stuff that you think important yeah definitely i think um just the bunny hops, I suppose. I, I use them for a couple of things. I use them to try and decrease people's ground contact time using a metronome. So, you know, if someone's got a really, I suppose, yep. what I consider a low cadence, and I know that there's going to be a significant variance in people's cadences when they run. But um, what works for one person is not necessarily going to work for the other. But I think ground contact time is, is important, particularly if you want to get faster. So... I'll often use that as a way to, yep. I suppose, yeah, get them to get on and off the ground a little bit quicker and work to a metronome for that just so they get an idea of what that pace is getting on and off the ground. Um, and then I'll actually, from going to, from two feet, I'll get them onto one foot. So it's also, I suppose, an exercise that I'll do when I'm returning someone from, say, an Achilles injury and you want to try and increase that load gradually. Like if a calf raises getting too easy for them and we need to get a little bit more of that dynamic load to mimic running a little bit better. I'll get them bouncing a little bit and then I'll get them hopping a little bit. And if we can get that to 
mimic a little bit more of that load that we get when we're running, all the better. Yeah. I think the other things mechanically that I think are are super important, um, getting our calf strong. So there's a lot of, a lot of force that goes through our body when we run. And it's interesting. There's a study that I saw from Dawn, um, D-O-R-N in, it was 2014 study. And I think this surprises a lot of people when I, when I tell them about it, that our glutes take sort of 1.5 to 2.5 body weight force. And I think there's a lot of emphasis put on glute function and don't get me wrong. It's important. It's super important in fact, but when we, when we compare that force that goes through our glutes when we run compared to what goes through our calf and in particular one of the two major muscles in there, a soleus, the soleus takes way more. So it's uh, according to this study, it's 6.5 to eight times our body weight force. Um, it's like, it, it, that's enormous. <laughs> and I think a lot of people get, get injuries yeah. in that area I don't know what the percentage of people that get injuries in that area is, but I know just from what I see in the clinic, I could tell you it's, it's relatively high in the calf, in the foot and in the Achilles. Um, I think if we get that area strong and it's able, it's got the capacity to tolerate the amount of load that's going through it, we're going to see someone not only being more efficient and potentially going faster, but we're also going to see a decrease in injuries as a result. Yeah. I, I I agree with that. Like, um, I I reckon it, like I just said, the feet are underrated. I reckon the calf is often Definitely. underrated amongst the running community as well. Like, and it's pro- it's probably easily done. Like, you look at the quad muscle, and everyone's quads are quite big, so you just assume that oh, I'll get that muscle big, and and that'll yeah. be enough. So everyone just does squats. It seems like um, that's the go-to squats or lunges. Um, yeah, so no, nah, I'm happy you said that because um, yeah, Kev Kev Craigie, who I had on um, the other week, he he said a very similar thing. He he really thinks that calves are um, should be yeah, um, and I think if anyone appreciated um, follows Brad Beer as well, and that's a little bit of a competitor to your to your show, mate. But yep. I think it also puts I think it's also got some great oh, no, great podcasts yeah. on there. Um, he talks a lot about the Masters runner and the yeah. importance of the calf. So I think he the Masters runner is over 35 and there's a yep. significant increase in injury risk in the Achilles and the foot and the calf over 35 and how important it is to keep improving that calf strength, especially once you hit that age and beyond. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um... Yeah. We would have got a lot of that stuff from Dr. Rich Willie, um, like the American yeah. um, uh, running researcher. Um, yeah, it's, it's really good stuff because, um, yeah, I think, yeah, once you're sort of hitting around that 50-year age bracket, yeah, I think compared to 30, you're losing um, 17% Achilles tendon stiffness. So your Achilles is getting a little bit more flexible. Um, and yeah, you're definitely exactly. yeah, losing yeah. muscle mass every year after 30. So, um, yeah. Um, so no, um, no wonder that yeah. the calf is really taking a, a big hit. <laughs> yeah. Especially when you, when you say that Dawn study as well, when it, you know, when, you know, you're taking, you're getting eight, eight times body weight load going through your calf. Yeah. Like, and I think, it, yeah, um, the two go, like you said, the two go together really well. So losing muscle mass. And a big force. Yeah. Like it sounds sounds bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mate, I, I've really loved this chat. Um, like so, so you've um been so generous with your your time and, and all the information that you've um offered everyone. Um where can uh if, if someone's interested in reaching out to you and find you, where can can they find you? Um, yeah, absolutely. So, so I yes, you think social media at Caleb McInnes Podiatrist. Um, my Facebook page, I've either got Caleb McInnes or I've got a podiatrist and athlete one too, Caleb McInnes Podiatrist and Athlete. The other thing where we started to post a lot of, is our business page, Thrive Sports Medicine. Um, so you can search any of them on the social media platforms. Um, what else? Yeah, go to our, go to our website www.thrivesportsmed.com.au. Um, 
yeah, I'm happy to for people to reach out in whatever way, shape or form they need to and connect. And, I, yeah, I really appreciate you having me on, Dane. It's been a good chat and I, I hope people get some stuff out of it and have learned some things. Oh, no, there's, there was heaps of really, really um, good myths, I reckon, that uh, um, and, and topics that uh, a lot of people just constantly struggle with. Um, I think footwear and shoes is one of the biggest ones um, where where people um, yeah, don't don't understand. So I, th- I think you've delivered like heaps of great information there. Um, yeah, no, I'm just really appreciative that you were keen to come on and um, yeah. No uh, problems at all. Thanks, thanks, thanks again so for much. inviting me. Thanks so much, Caleb.